You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Making a podcast means having a long list of script ideas that you swear you'll get around to. A list that you naturally add to faster than you could ever hope to write and record. My topic cue is... Ooh, it's 11 pages long. On April 15, 2018, retired Marine and quintessential movie drill instructor R. Lee Ermey passed away. That moved the topic for today's episode to the top of the list. So, Gunny, this one's for you. When you think of famous thefts, your mind probably goes to banks, jewelry, fine art, maybe a casino vault. With carefully organized plans, executed by people dressed in black turtlenecks with plenty of cool gadgets and close calls. What we remember as the daring heist of one of the world's most famous paintings was really neither of those things. The theft of Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa wasn't even noticed initially when it happened. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. These days, the Mona Lisa, also called in Italy La Gianconda, and her famous wry smile hang in a prominent place in the Louvre in Paris. It holds the Guinness World Record for the highest known insurance valuation in history at $100 million in 1962, which is worth nearly $800 million today. Over 6 million people go to see it each year. It's so popular that you can't snap a quick pic without a few dozen strangers' hands and cell phones in the frame. This popularity certainly wasn't the case when the painting was first hung in the Louvre in 1804, or for a century afterwards. Neither was it popular with critics in the artistic elite, who often relegated it to the low end of da Vinci's work. It was just another painting. It was so unspecial that it took the better part of 24 hours for staff to even notice the painting was missing in 1911. A handyman named Vincenzo Perugia, who was working in the museum, had simply waited in a closet until after the museum closed, tucked the painting under his smock, and walked out. He was unwittingly aided by a plumber also working in the museum, who unlocked a door for Perugia when he found himself stuck. The police were called and they searched the museum. The only sign they found of La Gionconda was its frame, lying on a staircase, though police did find some 21 other paintings that the curators had previously reported missing. The search went citywide, then national, then international. Ships were searched before they left France or after arriving in their port of call. A reward of over half a million dollars in today's money was offered. The Mona Lisa's picture was printed in newspapers all over the world. It became a sort of Mona Lisa mania. The theft of this single painting also served to spawn multiple criminal enterprises. People on the wrong side of the law knew that those with more money than morals would want to buy the Mona Lisa. A pair of confidence men from Belgium hired a small army of forgers to make high-quality fakes, which they sold to select buyers around the globe. 
They made sure their buyers were unlikely to ever meet, and rested soundly knowing no one would let on that they had purchased the most famous stolen painting in the world. Though today they would probably just take a selfie with it. The huge reward and the number of fakes in circulation meant that police were inundated with leads. For two years, they searched tirelessly but fruitlessly. The 60-man strong force even interviewed Perugia, twice, but decided he couldn't be the criminal mastermind they were looking for. Not only did those two years not yield La Gianconda, the police didn't even find the forgeries. The head of the Paris police retired in shame. So did Perugia get the enormous payday he was surely looking for? People were soon to learn that wasn't why he stole the painting at all. When Perugia approached a museum in Florence to sell them the painting, the museum's director called the police. After his arrest, Perugia stated, I worked in the Louvre, making frames for paintings stolen from Italy by France. Every day I passed La Gionconda and swore I would return it to its rightful home. He seemed convinced he would be heralded as a national hero. This was not the case, but the Italian courts were sympathetic, giving him only a year in prison for a world-famous theft. These days, the Mona Lisa sits behind more bulletproof glass than the Pope, but it could just as easily have been any other Italian-born work. If a different one of da Vinci's works had been stolen, said Noah Charney, professor of art history, then that would have been the most famous work in the world, not the Mona Lisa. The theft is what really skyrocketed its appeal and made it a household name. A quick aside for an art theft story that, while not as famous, is no less memorable. After a pair of Spanish con men discovered the Goya painting they had purchased was a forgery, they tried to recoup their losses by reselling the painting to an alleged Arab sheik for 4 million euros, using the same certificate of authenticity that had fooled them. A mysterious Italian middleman charged the Spaniards 300,000 euros for brokering the deal. The two con men traveled to Turin to receive 1.7 million Swiss francs as a down payment and pay the broker the 300,000 euros, which they had borrowed from a friend. However, when the con men attempted to exchange the Swiss francs in a bank in Geneva, it was discovered they had been given photocopies of francs. The fake painting had been paid for with fake money, though the money they gave the broker was very real. To make matters even worse, Upon leaving Switzerland, the two were then detained by French customs, who discovered the Fanks was Franks in their suitcase and informed the Spanish authorities. The painting was also confiscated. Picture, if you will, an artist that is more famous for his technique than for the art he created. He took his teacher's method and not only created a small empire from it, but took business away from his teacher, moving quickly from pupil to competitor to industry dominator. His teacher was given credit, but only in the beginning. The public was allowed to make what assumptions they would as to where the technique came from, as long as they kept tuning into the show and buying the products. That artist's name? Sorry to break this to you, listener, but it's Bob Ross. Bob Ross, the famous soft-spoken, afro-haired host of The Joy of Painting, was taught his famous wet-on-wet fast-painting technique by German expat Bill Alexander, who actually had his own PBS painting show called The Magic of Oil Painting, which ran from 1974 to 1982. Alexander's show, like The Joy of Painting, which ran from 83 to 94, was basically an advertisement for his painting supply business, Alexander Art. 
Bob Ross began his adult life in the Air Force, where he would rise to be Master Sergeant and was stationed in Alaska, which is no doubt why he painted so many snow-covered vistas. He was constantly searching for an art teacher who could actually teach him to paint when he took a class with Bill Alexander. The wet-on-wet -wet painting technique was an epiphany for Ross. When the joy of painting first began to air, things were pleasant between Ross and Alexander, with Alexander even filming a segment to pass the torch to his former student. The joy of painting was generating so much business for Alexander Art that they couldn't keep up with the demand, and someone, that person's identity has been lost to history, suggested to Ross that he start his own art supply company. After Bob Ross Inc. became a $15 million industry of how-to books, videos, and art supplies, something between the two men changed. In a 1991 New York Times profile, Ross declined to mention his painting teacher because, quote, he is our major competitor. He betrayed me, Alexander said in an interview. I invented Wet on Wet. I trained him and he's copying me. What bothers me is not just that he betrayed me, but he thinks he can do it better. Full disclosure, Alexander didn't invent Wet on Wet or Alla Prima. It dates back at least as far as Van Eck, Monet, and Van Gogh. So why was Ross able to eclipse Alexander to such an extent? It may come down to something as simple as likability. Alexander was boisterous and animated, prone to rambling and occasionally singing off-key. Ross, on the other hand, was laid-back and avuncular, a non-threatening peacenik. Ross saw this distinction, as did PBS station managers, who realized, as the New York Times reported, Ross's expanding circle of viewers were, for the most part, not even painting, nor did they have plans to start. They watched because the joy of painting is the most relaxing show on television. It is unfailingly simple, a three-camera production with a black background and, at Ross's insistence, no edits. Ross wears the same thing every time, blue jeans and a John Henry shirt, and in 26 minutes not only completes a painting, but also, in his lullaby voice, murmurs familiar Bobisms like, happy little trees and, what the heck, let's give him a little friend over here. And of course, there are no mistakes, only happy accidents. The show was so nice to listen to that it was even popular with blind viewers. Obscuring and outselling his teacher aside, let me state unequivocally that the internet isn't wrong with its recent love affair with Bob Ross. Not only could he be called the OG of ASMR, but you've got to love a guy who once did an entire episode in only shades of gray because he got a letter from a fan who was colorblind. His trademark afro was actually a perm he'd initially gotten to avoid the cost of properly maintaining his crew cut, and then he found himself more or less stuck with it to stay on brand. Did Bob Ross mind when people told him the show put them to sleep? No, he enjoyed that just as much as the people who said he'd inspired them to paint. And one time, he did the show with a little gray squirrel in his pocket. So there you go. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. 
This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Airwave Media Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. From art, we move to science. What do you think is the worst part of working on a group project? Is it trying to come to a meeting of the minds on what you're going to do? Is it the person who accepts their share of the assignment then doesn't do anything? Or is it when someone takes all the credit for one of the greatest advances in our understanding of biology? That's what happened to the discoverer of the double helix shape of DNA, English chemist and X-ray crystallographer Rosalind Franklin. There is probably no other woman scientist with as much controversy surrounding her life and work as Rosalind Franklin. Franklin was responsible for much of the research and discovery work that led to the understanding of the structure of DNA. Born in 1920, Franklin excelled at science and attended one of the few girls' schools in London that taught physics and chemistry. When she was 15, she decided to become a scientist, and despite her father's stance against higher education for women and his wish that Rosalind become a social worker, she enrolled at Newnham College, Cambridge in 1938. She held a graduate fellowship for a year, but quit in 1942 to work at the British Coal Utilization Research Association, where she made fundamental studies of carbon and graphite microstructures. Coal was not only important for power, but charcoal was a key component in gas masks. Her research was her contribution to the efforts of World War II and was the basis for her doctorate in physical chemistry, which she earned from Cambridge University in 1945. After Cambridge, she spent three productive years in a laboratory in Paris where she learned X-ray diffraction techniques. X-ray diffraction is an important non-destructive method for analyzing all kinds of matter from fluids to powders to crystals. The technique involves bombarding the sample with x-rays. The electron cloud of the atoms in the sample bends the x-rays slightly. This makes a picture of the molecule that can be seen on a screen. In 1951, Franklin returned to England as a research associate in John Randall's laboratory at King's College London. It was in Randall's lab that she crossed paths with Maurice Wilkins. She and Wilkins led separate research groups, although both were concerned with DNA. Randall assigned Franklin a DNA project that had already begun, but no one had worked on in months. Wilkins was away at the time, and when he returned, he misunderstood her role, 
behaving as though she were an assistant. A disappointing, but not surprising event given the climate for women then. Only males were allowed in the university dining room, and after hours all of Franklin's colleagues went to men-only pubs. Nevertheless, Franklin persisted on the DNA project. Her technique allowed her to take better pictures of the structure of DNA than anyone had before. J.D. Bernal, a scientist who pioneered the use of X-ray crystallography in molecular biology, called her X-ray photographs of DNA the most beautiful X-ray photographs of any substance ever taken. Without Franklin's knowledge or permission, Wilkins showed her images and data to James Watson and Francis Crick, who were themselves working on DNA projects. Franklin's photos were essential to the findings they published in 1953. Franklin was aware of their research, but had no idea that her work had been subsumed into theirs, as she was not credited at all. The closest she would get was when the journal Nature cited her work to bolster Watson and Crick's claims. Rosalind Franklin continued working until her death from ovarian cancer in 1958. Four years later, Watson and Crick were awarded a Nobel Prize for their discovery. They shared the award with Wilkins, but made no mention of Franklin. In fairness, Nobel Prizes aren't awarded posthumously, so we'll never know if Franklin would have received the credit she had been denied during her life. Now, showing off someone else's work without their permission is definitely not cool. But you know what is cool? Showing off your favorite podcast. How's that for a segue? If you've enjoyed today's episode so far, share it with a friend that you think will enjoy it too. Like they say, sharing is caring. The theft of intellectual property from one person is inarguably bad, but it pales in comparison to stealing the life savings of thousands. Compounding the economic crisis of 2008 was Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme. He and his accomplices stole as much as 20 billion, with a B, dollars from investors. They'd been at it for so long that to this day, no one is quite sure when they started. What we can be sure of is that most of the people he bilked will see little or no money coming back. Outside of really bad fraud, what is a Ponzi scheme anyway? The basic mechanism is to promise your investors irresistible returns and take their money. Then you promise irresistible returns to a second group of people, take their money, and use it as the returns for the first group, who will hopefully give you even more money now that they see that it works. Then you get a third group of investors and give their money to group two, all while keeping back a tidy sum for yourself. Lather, rinse, repeat. The word Ponzi is a proper noun, the family name of a charismatic Italian immigrant who lived in Boston in 1920. Charles Ponzi stood only five foot two, but he was a giant in his community, though only briefly. Ponzi claimed he had figured out a way to cash in on the chaotic post-World War I economic conditions in Europe by buying international postal union coupons from certain countries where they had been discounted and redeeming them at full value in the States. For example, a coupon could be bought in Germany for a penny and redeemed for a nickel. Ponzi claimed he had an army of agents scouring Europe to buy up all the available discounted coupons. In 1919 and 1920, Ponzi took in upwards of $15 million in small investments from 40,000 people, many of them Italian-Americans and recent immigrants. 
People lined up around the block to get through the Pie Alley entrance to Ponzi's Securities Exchange Company and hand over their hard-earned savings. Everyone gets rich in America, right? Charles Ponzi certainly did. He bought a hundred suits with matching shoes. He smoked copious cigars through diamond-studded holders. His mansion in Lexington had air conditioning and a heated pool. He was just shy of lighting his cigars with hundred-dollar bills while he propped his feet up on a poor investor. His life of Riley came to an end in the summer of 1920. After an investigation, the feds declared that every single postal coupon redeemed in the entire country by anyone, ever, wouldn't account for a fraction of the profits that Ponzi claimed to have made. A public relations man who worked for Ponzi briefly told the Boston Globe, The man is a complete financial idiot. He can barely add. He sits around with his feet on his desk, talking complete gibberish. The publicist further claimed that Ponzi had never once issued or received a foreign financial draft. On Monday, August 9th, a bank commissioner declared Ponzi's account overdrawn. On Wednesday, it was revealed that Ponzi had served prison time in Canada for forgery and in Atlanta for smuggling illegal aliens. Investors swarmed his office, desperate to try to get their money back. By Friday, Ponzi was in custody. In the face of over 10,000 creditors demanding $4.3 million, he declared bankruptcy. He was later sentenced to five years in federal prison for 86 counts of mail fraud, since he had mailed his victims letters to report on how well their investments were doing. He served around three and a half years, then got released to face state charges, for which he received a sentence of nine more years. But before he could go back to jail, he jumped bail and tried to start a new scam in Florida and Texas. Eventually, though, his time on the lam ran out and he served his entire sentence. Upon his release, Charles Ponzi was deported to Italy, where the man who was more clever than he was smart actually tried to defraud Benito Mussolini. The rest of his life was a string of less successful cons and jail sentences, until his death in a charity hospital in Brazil in 1949. As for our modern-day Ponzi, Bernie Madoff currently makes $40 a month in prison, wiping down electronics, and is scheduled for release in 2139. Circling back to the dedication from the top of the show, much in the way the Mona Lisa would not have been famous if not for a theft, it was theft by the late Arlie Ermey that made him arguably the world's most famous drill instructor. When we first meet Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in Stanley Kubrick's 1987 Vietnam epic Full Metal Jacket, he's introducing recruits to the Marine Corps boot camp. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, Sir, do you maggots understand that? Sir, yes, sir! That's about as much as I can play without having to bleep the ever-loving crap out of it. As a teenager, the Kansas native was arrested twice for criminal mischief. The court gave him a choice, prison or the military. Ermi chose the latter and joined the Marine Corps, where he served for 11 years, including 14 months in Vietnam and two tours in Okinawa, Japan. Eventually, he became a drill instructor, which is one reason he so excelled in the role of Hartman. After retiring from the military, Ermi decided on a new career path and began taking acting classes. He once told an interviewer that he had devised a plan to break into Hollywood, use his knowledge of military service to become a technical director on films. 
once in the crew, show the filmmakers that he should be starring in their movies. The plan worked three times in a row, scoring him his first three roles, a sergeant in Sidney J. Fury's The Boys in Company C, a helicopter pilot in Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, and the role of Hartman. The role originally belonged to actor Tim Colseri, but he tired out after 30 minutes of yelling at extras during a videotaped rehearsal. That's when Ernie jumped in and took over, his energy never letting up. Colseri ended up playing a door gunner instead. Here's where the story begins to spin off a little bit into modern urban legend territory. Some accounts claim Ermy went to director Stanley Kubrick and asked for the role of Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, since the actors on set weren't up to snuff. When Kubrick declined, Ermy barked an order for Kubrick to stand up when he was spoken to, and the director instinctively snapped too. Another account holds that Ermy persuaded Kubrick to cast him by making a homemade audition tape that showed him screaming insults with a stone face as tennis balls and oranges were thrown at his head, according to The Guardian. Once he landed the role, he rehearsed in the same manner. Kubrick's assistant, Leon Vitali, would sit across from Ermi in a 50-foot-long room and hurl tennis balls at the actor as he practiced his lines. If he slurred a word or slowed down, he had to start over. He had to do it 20 times without a mistake. For the most part, Ermi's lines weren't written. He improvised about half of his dialogue, drawing on his memories of the service. Inventing those insults wasn't particularly taxing for him. He was just being a drill instructor, this time on camera. Quote, My main objective was basically to play the drill instructor the way the drill instructor was and let the chips fall where they may, Ernie said in a History Channel interview. You can ask any drill instructor who was down there in 65 or 66. That's exactly how the drill instructor's demeanor was. There were no punches pulled. Remember how I said I have 11 pages of show ideas? My list can't hold a candle to Ermie, who Kubrick described as having an astounding 150 pages of insults. Though a kind and gentle family man in real life, Ermie would play essentially the same character to varying degrees in over 100 projects, as varied as HBO's Tales from the Crypt, the short-lived sci-fi series Space Above and Beyond, and the family-friendly classics The Toy Story Movies, where he voiced the little green army man Sarge. Bonus super geek fact, in the same way Kirk never said beam me up Scotty and Sherlock Holmes never said elementary my dear Watson, the phrase full metal jacket does not appear in the book the film was based on, Gustav Hasford's The Short Timers. Kubrick read it in a gun catalog and thought it sounded cool. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. There are a lot of metrics you can use to measure the magnitude of a theft. Maybe it's the dollar value? or how much press coverage it gets, and sometimes it's the stamp it leaves on modern culture and language. I'd like to take a few seconds to thank my listeners for their patience. My background contains very little in the way of audio tech, and I thank you for tolerating the vocal quality issues and other growing pains in recent episodes. I've been researching and practicing diligently to try to improve things. It helped especially when I found out there's a dead spot on my microphone, so it doesn't record well if it's pointed straight at me. So thank you for your patience, and thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's show was brought to you by the word crevice. Crevice. Get ready to geek out. 
The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.